We're going to turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 22 as we wrap up our time in this uh, interesting, challenging book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Um, pray for me because I uh, next week I have no clue what I'm going to preach. No clue whatsoever. I'm just completely lost. I'm thinking something Adventy, <laughs> but that's as far as I've got in my planning and preparation. So. All right, well, for now, let's keep our focus at the end of the Bible here. Revelation chapter 22. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and of your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the works, the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderous, murderers and adulterers and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Well, let's pray. We need the Lord's help. I do. I think you do too. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be gracious to us now and bless us by illuminating your word to us. We need to hear from you. We need to 
have this word planted in our minds and our hearts so that it brings about uh, the effect that you want it to have in our lives, that of our sanctification. And for those who have not yet believed, perhaps, Lord, even today, their entrance into the kingdom of God because they've been made wise to salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, all of this is the work of your Spirit. I'm merely a messenger, so I pray that you would strengthen me for the task, that you would give us all that receptivity of mind and heart, the attitudes that are ready to hear from you. So help us look beyond the man to Christ the Word himself. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, it was about three years ago, it was around this time of year, uh, someone ran into my car. Uh, There's pretty extensive damage to the rear quarter panel and the rear bumper. Uh, the reason for that driver running into me uh, was due to his inattention, but at that time of year, there was a lot of accidents because it had snowed, and uh, it took a long time for me to get my car back. It took over a month, in fact, and, and when, I, when I got it back, it just, well, it wasn't as good as it was. It had problems. Uh, it wasn't exactly fixed ideally. I had to take it back and some things addressed, but I found out later on that there were more things wrong and, well, too much time had gone by. And you know, even with the best repair of a car, there's, you know this, there's this negative mark on the reputation of the car. Because if you were to look up, you know, buying a used car on those uh, reports associated with a VIN number, you know, you, my old car, 2018, Ford Focus, red, five-door hatchback, personal use, one accident. It was like, it's like a criminal record for a car. Oh, well... I'll pass that one over in the used car market and get something else. Well, I don't own that car anymore. Somebody eventually bought it. But, but you get what I'm saying. It's, it's like a, a black mark. Our best efforts at, at making something new always seem to fall short. In the creation story, the reason I use this illustration, the creation story, when God made it everything, he said it was very good, very good. Of course, you know the story. Man corrupted it. We, through our sin, corrupted creation. We've made a mess of it. But from the beginning, God had a plan to restore it. Not just to make it as good as new, but to make it something entirely better than the original. Not just as good as new, but entirely better than the original. Now this last chapter of Revelation, it not only wraps up this book, but I, I think it really wraps up the entire Bible in the beginning, God made everything, and in the end, he restores everything. Now, after man sinned, God banished him from the garden. God banished him from his presence. But in the end, man dwells with God again. Now, of course, we have more of a picture of God's plan than Adam did. We have more of that picture than Abraham or even John the Baptist. But we are still living in an in-between time, if you will. Christ has come the first time. He lived, he died, he rose again. He did that to rescue us spiritually. He, he ascended to his heavenly throne at the right hand of God. But we're waiting for him, still waiting for him to return to make all things new. And that waiting requires endurance. Endurance. So what we need brothers and sisters in Christ, what we need is the constant reminder that Christ is the victor. 
We need that constant reminder that he has taken away the power of sin and death for all who recognize him and trust him. And what he has planned for his creation is absolutely glorious. And that's what we get to look at in this chapter. As we begin, verses 1 through 5 describe a better Eden, a better Eden. If you've seen the movie Castaway, you know that there's that lone survivor of this FedEx package, uh, transporting packages, the FedEx jet crashes. This, the, the, the character is assumed dead. He is stranded on an uninhabited island. It's a beautiful tropical place. It's unspoiled. The character there, Chuck Noland, he makes several attempts to find his way back. But he gets so discouraged in the process that, that he decides there's no reason to live. And if you know the story, he actually does an experiment to test his suicide method, which ends up failing. Upon, and then it's at that point where he has this change of heart and change of mind to once again try to get back. Now, it's not the theme of the movie at all, but, but in such an idyllic environment, such a beautiful tropical place, I, I think you understand, and we all understand this, Chuck Nolan understood this, fictitious character, that living is not merely existing in a beautiful place. If it was, he'd be content to make the best of life alone and not bother trying to get back. Life is not merely existing in a beautiful place. So if we were to ask the question, what is life? What is life? Now, in a church, you're going to know the Sunday school answer. You're going to say, Jesus, I get that. But let's just for a moment set aside that truth. I think we all understand that life, and these are, religious or not, spiritual or not, believer or not, everybody understands that life is not mere existence. It is our relationships. Now, in the creation story, God said, it is not, not good for the man to be alone. And here's where we bring Jesus back into the equation. God made us a people to be in relationship with one another, with God and Christ at the center. That's Eden. God made us to be a people together in relationship with God and Christ at the center. And that is what is Eden. Now John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth back in the last chapter, chapter 21, that was focused there on the, the completion of the people of God. The completion of that people ultimately in relationship with Christ. And so the city, the 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 Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the bride. It is basically the, the people of God purified and that symbolic imagery. The people of God made ready. Now as we move here, and what we're looking at in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we're being shown something now of the environment. In the last chapter, it was the people made ready. Now, something of the environment. Now if you read the beginning of the Bible, you'll see that this description Looks familiar. It should look familiar. Let's go back to Genesis and just see what, what was there. In Genesis, there was a river that flowed out of, the, and, uh, out of Eden and divided into four rivers. That's Genesis 2.10. In the Genesis Eden, there was a tree of life, Genesis 2.9. In the Genesis Eden, God walked in the garden, Genesis 3.8. In that Eden, God assigned the lights, the sun, the moon, to distinguish night from day, Genesis 1.14. Yet in that Eden, sadly, man sinned, 
and the ground was cursed, Genesis 3.17, and he was ultimately banished from God's presence, Genesis 3.24. Now we come to the other end of the Bible and we see this better Eden. There, there's a river of the water of life, verse 1. And this river is now seen as flowing from the very throne of God and the Lamb. Now, now this aspect of John's vision here, what he sees, I, I think is, is, is an echo of Ezekiel's temple imagery. Uh, you see that in uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, if you want to look that up. But also, I think he's maybe taking something from Psalm 46, 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This idea that this water of life refreshing the people of God. Well, there's a, there's a river. There's also in this better Eden, there's also the tree of life, verse, verse two. But we're told the tree of life is on both sides of the river. So perhaps there are many trees of life, but we're told in, in the text here that there's 12 kinds of fruit yielding in each month. And, and here I take it that, uh, as I've been saying through our journey through Revelation, I take it that these numbers are very symbolic I don't know there's literally going to be a tree, but I think this, we're to understand something as this being symbolic of God's design for completeness. 12 being a number of human completeness as God designs it, right? God designed human completeness from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of, of Jesus. So this is an idea of completeness. So this is God, this is symbolic and it's everything, everything that man needs. And then we're told that the, the leaves of this, these trees or the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, healing. What In the new heavens and new earth, there's, there's no sin, there's no disease, there's no injury. So, so what's this healing? And I take it here, it's symbolic. This is symbolic of the eternal peace between people. Peace that's never been known in the face of the earth. Peace that is elusive. In every century since the beginning of time, nations have been warring with one another. But these leaves, symbolic of that, that peace has come, the healing of the nations. And we see, uh, different from the original Eden, there is now in this better Eden no longer anything cursed, verse 3. The destruction that was caused by man's sin, it's taken away. And then what we also see is that in the first Eden, the, 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 the sun and the moon, the light's assigned to distinguish day from night. Well, in the new Eden, the better Eden, the light of the glory of God will make that sun completely unnecessary. And where in the last Eden, man was banished from the presence of God. The throne in this new Eden, the throne of the Lamb, the throne of God and of the Lamb, they're there. And they, the inhabitants of this place, they will see the face of the Lord. And the Lord will once again walk among his people. And I take that this is a, a fulfillment, a physical fulfillment of that, that Aaronic blessing, if you're familiar with it. We used to say it to our ch young children when, at bedtime, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The face of God will see the face of God. Now this, this Eden, this is new, recreated, re-restored Eden, this better Eden, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to behold. The, the river of life, the tree of life, the presence of God with his people, the light of his glory, the elimination of the curse. But I think you should see this. 
All of these things about the environment are relational. They're relational. They're about God fellowshipping with his people. That was the intent of, intent of the first one until Adam and Eve wrecked it. God fellowshipping with his people. But we're not there yet, are we? Right now, we do live with the consequence of Adam's failure in the first Eden. We do live with the knowledge that the goodness of God to provide that perfect place for man that was stained by man's rebellion. Ultimately, his abdication of his responsibility, his failure to appreciate the good gifts that God had given. So we're waiting. We're waiting for new Eden. But the Lord Jesus has paved the way for us to enjoy that by restoring spiritually the fellowship that we can have with God. Now, the Spirit showed John these things so that we would long, so that we would have this longing for, for true life, for eternal life, life with God forever. You see, Eden isn't primarily out of, about a place. Eden isn't about a place. It's primarily about a person. What is life? Jesus prayed to the Father in the presence of his disciples. You, Father, have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Jesus defining it. This is eternal life. That they, people, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, eternal life is not a place. Eternal life is the person of God and knowing him. So let me ask you, are you destined for Eden this morning? If you're watching on the live stream, do you know you have eternal life? And the only way that you can know that is that if you have acknowledged your sin before the Lord, that in true repentance you have turned away from that sin and have turned to Christ, who is the Son of God, the Son of God who took on human flesh. The only way that you can enjoy Eden, eternal life forever, is if you trust that what Christ accomplished at the cross is that he took upon his own body the full measure of the wrath of God for your sin. Do you believe that? Have you trusted in him for that? And do you believe that the grave could not hold him down, that he indeed walked out of that tomb on the third day. If you're trusting in that, that's what it means to know God and to know the Son of God. And if you truly believe that, see you in Eden. That's life. Well, there's some exhortations that come out of this. So that's what we're looking forward to. So what do we do? We're prepared. Be prepared for Christ's return. Be prepared. That's what we're to do. That's why John has been shown these, and that's why it's been written down, so that we can be prepared for Christ's return. When Kathy and I are planning a trip, some kind of vacation, we, we, we do this. I don't know if you do this. We usually get the suitcases out a few days before, and we start setting aside some of the things that we'll be packing. But the planning for that trip didn't begin a couple days before. In fact, there had been several months. You know, the, had to look for the right 
price on the flights, the airfare, bought the tickets, find our lodging, the, the, the Airbnb or the hotel we're staying in or the rental car if needed to get where we were going. The day before, of course, we make double sure the alarm is set, especially if it's an early flight. You know, you all do this, right? It's a week away from home and we do all this preparation. It's significant, isn't it? How much more? For a glorious end in Eden, how much more should we be prepared for Christ's return? Verses 6 through 14 of our text, you can see these, the symbolic images of the visions have now ended. There's no more of that. And John is now given the meaning and the purpose of all that he has seen. Not, not only the, the view of Eden, but the, the entirety, I would say, of the book of Revelation. And so the first way to be ready, so we're to be prepared for Christ's return. How can we be prepared? How can we be ready? The first thing to understand is heed his word. Heed, listen, pay attention, note the importance, take heart, the word of Christ. And we see in verse six, the angel tells him, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. Bank your life on them, Build your life around them. They're trustworthy and true. Of course, they're trustworthy and true. True because they come from Christ, who is the truth, John 14, 6. They're trustworthy because they ultimately accomplish exactly the thing that they declare. There's no, there's no uh, failure on the part of God's word to, to actualize the thing that it declares. Unlike our words, we, we make hopeful statements. Tomorrow I'm going to do this or that thing. I can't guarantee it. I can just be hopeful. I can maybe Probably, but when, when God's word declares something, when Christ's word declares something, there isn't any possibility that won't happen. And we also must heed this word, and, and this where the sense of urgency comes in. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. So all of these words, book of Revelation, they're good for us. And we're told that. Verse seven, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, that's how he opened, right? That's how John opened in verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Same thing he says there. Verses 8 and 9, he says, he tells us this, this, this um, well, what happens, because what he has seen and heard comes to him with such overwhelming authority that he now recounts here what he has told us in chapter 19, verse 10, how he fell down to worship the messenger but we, he was rebuked. No, no, no. Worship God. You see, what he was hearing was so, so profound and overwhelming, he thought, this, this is God's word. And he tries to worship the angel, but he says, no, I'm, I'm just a messenger. Worship God. But he feels the weight of the words, right? But he is told to do something. Verse 10, do not, do not seal up the prophecy of this book. So again, there's that urgency. The end is near. Here's another allusion, by the way, uh, to, to the prophets. The prophet Daniel, likewise, had a, a vision of the end. But he was told, seal up the vision. For it, is, for it refers to many days from now. John is told, no, don't seal it up. This is near. So as I was thinking about this, what is the blessing that, that comes from keeping the words of the prophecy of this book? Now, I would say that that extends to the entirety of the scriptures, not just Revelation. Well, first of all, the blessing is that the words of this book, all of scripture, give spiritual life. They actually create life. 
here's what Paul says to Timothy. He talks about the sacred writings, the, the scriptures. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. It is the scriptures that point us to Christ that, that brings new life when the Spirit works with the Word. It awakens the dead. These sacred writings were able to do that. And the reason, brothers and sisters, you are here as a believer in Jesus is because you heard the word of Christ. You heard the gospel, the good news of your salvation. And the Spirit took that and said, here's the truth. Your eyes were opened. Your heart was made alive. And you said, I see Jesus for who he is. That's all because of the word of Christ. Apart from the word of Christ, apart from the gospel, that which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, apart from this word, we would all be spiritually dead and therefore condemned. Without the word, we'd be condemned, lost. Now, another aspect of, of this blessing that we get is that the word of Christ, the scripture, it sustains. So it makes us alive in Christ, but then it sustains spiritual life. It, it's food, right? The Apostle, or sorry, no, the, the book of Hebrews talks about the scripture, that they're living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you, when you read this book, when you hear this book, it embeds itself in you, and it convicts you, and it does something to you that no other book in all creation can do because it is the word of God. It's living, it's active. You don't so much read it as it reads you. It's glorious. And because the scriptures are living and active, they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman, person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. See the power of this book, the power of the word of Christ to do that in you. Listen, if you do not cherish the word of Christ, and hear me on this, I'm no prophet, but if you do not cherish the word of Christ, when you're tested, you will defect. You will abandon the faith. You will deny Christ. Cherish the word. And that the word is so, so vitally important for all of life and eternity is, is captured in Jesus' warning. You can look down at verse 18 in your Bibles. He says there, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of the, so the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, you say something that isn't in it, you try to teach that, you try to push that on people as if somehow that is needed. Here's what, Jesus says, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That's serious. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, say, I know it says that, but you know, you, you really, you don't, that really doesn't count anymore. Doesn't that happen a lot today? If anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. You hear that? Christ adding judgment plagues, removing access to the tree of life, consigning to a place outside the city. These are words of condemnation. The warning is so profoundly stern because tampering with the word of Christ is inherently satanic. 
Remember what the serpent said to Eve. Did God actually say? Casting that doubt. Tampering with the word of Christ is satanic. It's that same spirit that the Apostle Paul had when he warned the Judaizers in Galatians. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema. Condemned. Consigned to the lake of fire. That is dead serious. False teachers were corrupting the gospel in Galatia. But that, that's been a danger ever since the time of the early church. Paul instructed Timothy, told him, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. People in church are saying, tell me something I want to hear. Tell me something that makes me feel good. Tell me something that I'm okay. It's a, it's a subtle problem that professing Christians are often unaware of. There is a kind of preaching that dances around the edges of this. It's a kind of teaching that, that, that is person-oriented. What will get me the likes let me give you some tips for life. And they go putting sermons together. They've decided the thing that they want to say and they, they mine the Bible for quotes that just fit the thing, taking them completely out of context. But listen, preaching, the whole Bible, it, it isn't primarily about you. It isn't about me. The word of Christ is about Christ. So when you hear about him, when you hear about his commands, when you hear what God says about our own failures, and when you hear about what Christ's victory is for those failures, here's where you and I come in. What are you going to do about that? <laughs> right? Follow or flail? Trust or perish? That's it. Now, I, um, and I, I, I can speak for the other elders here. We take Jesus' warning seriously for the sake of our own souls and yours. Like the Apostle Paul said, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Listen, if you do not cherish the word of Christ, you will defect. You will leave the faith. Well, that's one way to be prepared. Heed the word. Second way, to be ready for Christ's return is be holy, be holy. You know that Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the others. One of these things that doesn't belong, right? You know, kids are taught to make distinctions between shapes and colors and categories of things, right? Well, Jesus wants to make clear to his own you're to be different from the wicked. You are to be holy. Holy, that word, hagios, that's in the Greek. Saint, same, means to be set apart. Other, one of these things is not like the other, right? So when we say God is holy, when the Bible says that, what that means is that he is 
wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely other. He's not us. So when you define something as holy, it is by definition comparative. This is not that. To be holy is to be set apart, set apart from something or someone else. So here's what I take. I think this is what we're being called to here. People who are ready for the return of Christ are holy people. Or, stated this way, holiness is proof that you have been set apart by God. One more way to say it. If you pursue holiness, it's because you have been set apart by God in Christ. Now, I, I want to I make sure you understand. I'm not saying that, that gaining a certain level of holiness is the earning of our place in the family of God. That you have been placed in the family of God drives you to want to be holy. Holiness is the fruit of our salvation, not the root. Ever since the beginning of time, God has commanded that his people be like him in moral character, set apart. Set apart from those who are not his people. In the Old Testament, Leviticus, you shall therefore be holy for I am holy. Because God is holy, we should be holy. New Testament, be imitators of God as beloved children, Ephesians 5.1. So what does that look like? What does holiness look like? And maybe you have a picture of well, you know, somebody who kind of walks around piously, well, I'm a holy man. Holiness is, is not, it's not meant to be something that's so weird or strange. It's simply godly character. That's what it is. Here's holiness from Galatians 5. It's other things, but here it is. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. That's holiness. And those character qualities, well, Galatians says it's the fruit, it's the outworking of the Spirit of God in your life. The Apostle Paul, in teaching on these things, says, hey, these, nobody makes a law against any of this, right? You, there's no law on the books that says don't be kind, don't be loving, don't be peaceful, don't have meekness, don't have self-control. No, there's no law against these things. This is what holiness is. And because there's kindness, you're going to forgive when somebody sins against you. Because you're patient, you'll not jump down the throat of somebody who offends you. Because you have self-control, you won't indulge your fleshly passions. That's holiness. Because Christ is returning. We should be these people. Now, to illustrate the point, the angel here in the text contrasts the righteous from the unrighteous. He says, let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy be filthy. Uh, language is kind of challenging, I recognize. But don't take it as God commanding people to do evil. Of course, as James writes, God, God cannot be uh, tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. He doesn't produce evil. He doesn't want people to do evil. 
I think it's more indicative of the fact that those who are bent on denying the truth, God, like Romans 1, God hands them over. Like, you want to deny me? You want to deny my authority? You want to deny that I'm God of the universe? Fine. Have at it. Verse 11, the exhortation. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. So I take it what this is is a call to persevere, to not fall into worldly corruption. Now Jesus here identifies himself as Alpha and Omega. That's verse 13. He's taking that very same title as the Lord God Yahweh. Chapter 1, verse 8. You can see that in the back, uh, if you turn back. The first and last, the beginning, the end. That's signifying that the Lord is omnipotent, om omnipresent, omniscient. He, he his, has absolute authority over all things. And, and because of that, he can command these things. Be holy. Pursue righteousness. And he gives the reason again. Behold, I'm coming soon, verse 12. And what he says here is he's bringing recompense, just wages for what you've done. Either reward or punishment. So the warning sits out there. Like there's two paths. The unrighteous will receive their just reward. The holy will receive their righteous reward, which is Eden. Now Jesus expands on that contrast to just to show the result of the choices. Blessed are those, verse 14, who wash their robes. And that is symbolic. Understand, how you be a holy person? Those who wash their robes. Now, it doesn't mean you put them in the laundry, but this is symbolic of the righteousness that has been purchased by the sacrifice of Christ, right? Made white, back in chapter 7, verse 14, made white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Christ, His sacrifice covers sin. Those are the blessed ones. And your sin is covered if you have believed that Jesus did that for you. So again, it's not about earning it. You're blessed because you have been declared righteous in God's sight by what Christ has accomplished. And because Christ has accomplished that for you, you are then therefore motivated to reflect the very character of God. That's a spirit work in you that you would not have done on your own. And he says, the dogs, they can't access the city. They have to remain outside. Okay, this isn't a commentary on whether dogs go to heaven. But understand here, this, this dogs, that's a derisive term for all that is evil. Those that, so the dog here is, is the, the one who feeds off of all that is corrupt. You think of a walled city, and outside of the city, there's these wild dogs, scavengers, consuming refuse, animal carcasses, the corpses of the condemned, those killed in battle. That's the dogs. They, they, they consume evil. They live off it. And so he metaphorically uses this term to, to include sorcerers, those who, those who do evil arts, sexually immoral. You know what that means? Murderers, idolaters, those who love and practice falsehood. And you can see that this sets up a contrast for us Sorcerers, sexually immortal, murderers. And, and let me just say, murderers are those, according to Jesus, in the same category, those who hate. Haters would be among them. Idolaters, those who elevate themselves and deny God. And ultimately, those who practice falsehood. 
See, we're given this, this contrast so that we, we, we internalize this, so we get this understanding of what holiness looks like. It's not like that. Now, these are some of the things that the churches in, in chapters two and three, they were tolerating and they were told to repent of. But in Eden, all, all of this will be gone. All that curse will be gone. Sin and death will be no more. All who have the Lord's name on their foreheads, verse four. So, if that is the case then, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be pursuing now what will be completed on that day. Are you? Are you pursuing now what will be completed on that day? If you're waiting for that day for your life to be cleaned up, you're probably not following Jesus. Now, I know we fail. We all fail. We cannot claim or even hope to claim that we will be sinless in this life. That's not the point. But, it, but what this means is we don't give in. And God has given us the means, his word. Holiness, that's, that's an honest, word-sustained, spirit-empowered pursuit that seeks to reflect the moral character of Christ. And I want that in me. And I pray that you want that too. Well, Finally, the thing we're to take away from this is hope in Christ alone. Hope in Christ alone. Now, as Christmas approaches, we're, we're drawn to Christ's first advent. We're reminded how he came in weakness and humility. The Bethlehem story, right? Born in a manger. But let me say this. that The, the story of Jesus is not much better than a Santa myth if he never gets to the cross. The story of Jesus and his cross makes no sense unless he is raised. And let me say this, and the resurrection accounts for little if Jesus never returns. Revelation gives us hope that the church can faithfully endure while we wait for his glorious return when all creation will bow to him as king. Jesus tells John, this is why I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. That's the churches in two and three, but I say they're representative of churches through every age and every time and place on the earth. Looking at 16, Jesus reminds John who he is. Just in case, just in case you think that this is just something that happened, like there, and this is, no. He's enfolding the entirety of human history by saying who he is, the root and descendant of David. Now this alludes to Isaiah 11.1, 1, but this is a shorthand. As the root of David, King David, right? As the root of King David, he is before him. So that means he's the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. That means that he is the, the offspring of Abraham, Genesis 22.18. That means he's the ruler of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. That means he is the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. And as the descendant of David, Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the Christ, fulfilling 
the promise of First Chronicles 7, 12, of a forever king for the people of God. So as both the root and descendant of David, what, what John is being told, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Open your Bible. Any expectation is ultimately satisfied. Good expectation is satisfied in him. And he adds that he is the bright morning star. And here, likely an allusion to Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our hope, not only for what he has done in the past, to call us to himself through his sacrifice, but he has our hope as well for what he has promised. So church, your light has come, and he is coming again to make all things new and rule. Now I don't know if John knew that he was writing the last book of the Bible, but what's clear to me is that the story of Christ has been woven through the entirety of God's revelation in the scriptures. And Jesus is the one through whom and in whom all our hopes are fulfilled. And we're told that it is the Spirit of God that, that keeps this hope alive among us. Verse 17, we're almost to the end of this. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit indwelling the church, the bride of Christ, the true church. The Spirit keeps us anticipating his return. That's why we gather together. We're looking forward. We're saying, hold on, persevere, be faithful. He's coming back. Verse 17, and he says, let the one who hears say come. So we're hearing. We're encountering the word of God. Let the one who hears that say come. In other words, you be longing for that day. Because it is in Christ alone that your, your thirst will be quenched. He is your eternal satisfaction. He will, in eternity, give you everything that you need in him. So when you face tribulation, and you will, remember Christ is coming back. When you face hardship, when you face suffering, when there's disease, when there's loneliness, when there's heartache, remember Remember and look forward to Christ's return. Now, maybe you're not suffering. Maybe things seem to be going your way. Your business is prospering and you're healthy. Listen, hold these things loosely. They're temporary. Remember what Jesus taught. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I don't think Jesus was talking about stuff. Christ is the treasure. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a better Eden. Paradise will be restored. So let's be prepared. Let us hold fast to the word of Christ and reflect his character while we wait. And if you do that, to borrow a line from Horatio Spafford's hymn, 
if you do that, you would truly be able to say, it is well with my soul. You could say it is well with my soul when sorrows like sea billows roll. You can say it is well with my soul if Satan should buffet and trials come. And hopefully you can say with the hymn writer, Oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And so, church, we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we know that we've been given this word so that we can endure. We know that the power of our endurance is not our willpower, but it is the power of your word in us and your spirit indwelling your church. So God, we pray, grant us the grace we need to be faithful. Grant us the grace we need to cherish your word because it is the food that keeps us faithful. Grant us the grace to endure if trials should come, if persecution should come. Grant us. And Lord Jesus, please come soon. Father, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.